Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to Rest. Good morning, Rest Church. How many of you are glad to be in God's people's house this morning? In the hizzy. Um, welcome to week number 15 in our study through the book of Romans. Yeah. Uh, it has been uh, a lot of fun. It has been challenging. It has been um, um, a, a tussling match at times. Uh, we've played with the, uh, the Hulk um, at times. We've learned about banking systems. And last week, uh, John uh, brought out some toddler play blocks. We've, we've had all kinds of fun. There won't be any, any uh, examples other than my ugly face today. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but as we go into week 15, we're kind of in this, this uh, four buckets group. And we kind of have this, this way of breaking out the, the place that we're at in the book of Romans right now. If you guys will give me that graphic real quick. There we go. All right, so it, what we see in kind of verse 18 of chapter number one, all the way through verse 32, Paul is speaking directly to the pagans. And then he kind of flips the script a little bit as we come into chapter number two, verses one through 16. And it's because what we, what we said is, as we looked at chapter number one, the, and, and where Paul kind of condemns a lot of pagan practices, the Jews would be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get them, Paul, get them, Paul. And Paul's like, oh, you think you're special. Here we go. And so Paul then starts to throw in the right, the left, the uppercut, right to the face. And, that, and that's kind of the place where we're setting down right now. He's speaking directly to the heart of these religious zealot Jews who are in the church in Rome. And then as we progress on, we're going to move to bucket three, the religionists, verses 17 through um, chapter three, verse eight, and then so on and so forth. But we'll, we'll deal with that later. The last two weeks, we've seen Paul kind of bring to the forefront this banking idea, this concept of paying into these two particular accounts, this account of righteousness and this account of wrath. And accordingly, God, the righteous judge, will pay us each according to what we put in there. So we're all going to get a tax return, okay? We're all getting a tax return. It's just all about which account you've been paying in, baby. We're all going to get that tax return. And, and Pastor John last week kind of unpacked this, this, the, the antithesis of what Pastor AB talked about, which was the account of wrath. And Pastor John talked about the account of, of good works last week. And, 
as he did, he kind of had this, this one overarching theme, this one overarching statement, your reaction to the gospel results in your reward. Your reaction to the gospel resorts in your, or results in your reward. And so today we're going to unpack two verses, say two. You didn't know we could go 70 minutes on two verses until today. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. All right. So chapter two, verses 12 and 13. And this morning, we're going to kind of dive headlong into what it means to be a hearer and a doer, to be a hearer and a doer. So Romans chapter two, verses 12 and 13. For all have sinned without the law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask for a supernatural move in this place. We ask that your people, that they would, they would come together united under the gospel saying, God, we give you the freedom to reprove, to rebuke, and to remove the sin that is in our hearts, in our minds, and God, to bring amongst us revival, to re- re- rekindle in us the spirit that we felt on our first day when we met you, that, Lord, that we might be innocent that we might be ambassadors for your gospel and for your good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So verse 12, here we have, for all who have sinned without the law, let's, let's kind of see this together, will perish also, or will also perish without the law. So what's, what's Paul getting at? So Paul is raising this statement against this particular objection that's being brought forth. Here's the objection. How could people be judged according to a standard that they did not know, right? So here we are. We have Paul writing, writing against these Judaic people, these people who have converted over to Christianity inside the church in Rome, and he's posing this question of how do we deal with the law? How will the law be dealt with? And he's saying right here, um, kind of this, this question, he's posing this question, how could judgment be just if those who don't know God's law perish apart from the law? Because Paul is laying forth this standard that we are all going to be judged for our good works and also for our bad works. We're going to be judged for both. Every one of us will stand before God the Father in the great white throne of judgment and we will have to give an account for what we have done. Every one of you, all of us, all, every single one of you. Paul's answer here is that God's law is inborn in people. That God's law is written on your hearts. And that sometimes, even apart from the law, even prior to knowledge of the Mosaical law, even prior to the knowledge of the Levitical law, even prior to any, any word being declared to the Gentile people, the law of God was already on their hearts. Even though they didn't know the law, they still followed the law. God's written law is on their hearts. In chapters one and two 
Paul peels back this idea that one day we will stand before God in judgment and we will not be able to say, we will not be able to say, I didn't know. Paul Paul is laying that out clearly. He is articulating that, that there is no one in the far flungs of the East Sentinel tribe in India that has not been touched by anyone. There is no one in the Northern Territory of Canada that hasn't been reached. There is no people group, no person who will be able to stand before God Almighty and say, I didn't know. That's what Paul's getting out here. Why? Because he has placed his law upon their hearts and minds. That even without revelation of the law, even without revelation of the good news of Jesus deep inside of us, intrinsically within us, there is this law, there is this idea of good and evil. This is not just a Christian concept. In fact, one of the most well-known philosophers of all time in all of antiquities wrote about this particular idea. How many of you have ever heard of Immanuel Kant before? If you study sociology or psychology, I guarantee you, you have read Kant's writings. In fact, on this particular um, idea of knowing good and evil, right and wrong, he, he terms it as the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative that deep within us, we all have this innate sense uh, that, that, that we know right and wrong. And that's what Paul's getting at here in Romans chapter one and two. He, he says in chapter one that the heavens declare his goodness, that the heavens declare his work, that earth screams, I have a creator, that everything about us says that there is a higher power, that there is a God. And so there, therefore, because of that, no man has an excuse. In the same way, no man has an excuse to say, I didn't know God's holy law because we all know we're not supposed to kill each other, right? We all know that we're not supposed to go hang out and hook up with our best friend's wife, right? We we know on our deepest, most intrinsic being what is right and wrong. We don't need Immanuel Kant to tell us the categorical imperative. We have each inside of us God's law written on our hearts. We know right and wrong, good from evil. And so we see him saying, For all who have sinned without the law, there is sin without the law. And then there's this one group. Who is that group? That's the Gentiles. They didn't have the revelation of the law. They didn't have the teachings of the Torah. They didn't have the teachings of the prophets. But now here's the second group. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged rightly by the law. And so he's saying now to the the Jews, hey, listen up. You think you are righteous because you've heard the law, but I'm here to tell you a new narrative. Here's what he says. Paul says, whether you sin without the law, the Gentiles, or one who sins under the law, the Jews, both of you are condemned apart from Christ. There is no salvation under the law. There is no salvation apart from the law. Salvation is only found in one person under heaven and earth, and that is is Jesus. There's no loopholes here. There's no loopholes from the perfect judgment of God. There is no fast pass or bypass to his judgment. All, all will bow 
all mouths will be hushed before the throne that spoke the heavens into existence. No one will be able to say, but, but God, but God, I, I didn't know, I didn't hear, I, I didn't have revelation. No, 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 he, he's saying essentially here, there is no bypass here. Put plainly, we are without excuse. So I want to pause here because most of the time, what tends to happen is that folks come to church and they're, and they're kind of in these one or three different camps. The first camp is they're here because they believe fundamentally in Jesus. They want to know and grow in his works. They want to know and grow into his knowledge. But then there's this kind of, there's this two other groups. There's this one group that you came to church today because you're giving Jesus his first chance in your life. You said, Jesus, uh, I'm going to show up. If you're real, reveal yourself to me. Let me know, whatever. I'm here. My heart's open. You know, make a move. Or maybe I'm just here to check it out, fill it out. And then there's this third group. This third group, you're the, you're the person who's saying, this is your last chance, Jesus. I, I, I've tried church. I'm tired of church folks. They hurt me all the time. I, I feel like I can't ever find my, my niche place to be in the body. I, I feel like I'm segregated and broken from the community. I, this is your last chance, Jesus. I, I want to tell you this is that don't find yourself in eternity blaming the bride for your condition. Don't find yourself in eternity saying, but Jesus, had your people been nicer, I would have followed you. Had your people, you know, respected my feelings and and not had me triggered all the time, I would have followed you. That's like going to the gym to get fit and walking in and finding fat people there and being like, I can't be here because fat people are here. That's where fat people go, man. That's where they go. And you know what? You know where the church is? It's where broken people come to get their junk together. And so don't let broken people stop you from getting to the one who helps broken people get their stuff together because it's not the people in this room, but it's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that mends us. So don't find yourself in eternity saying, but God, but God, I I would have done this. No, 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 no. One day you will stand before God in judgment on your own volition, on your own confession. No one will stand on your behalf. Grandma won't be there for you. Mom and dad won't be taking the the beating for you. They won't be able to pull you up again for the millionth time. No, you're going to stand before God on your own two feet, on your own mind, and on your own thoughts. You will be judged for you. So don't, don't, don't go to heaven thinking there's a loophole or a fast pass because there's not. To the Jew, he says, what counts is not having What counts is not not having the law, but being doers of the law. Meaning that what matters is not merely possessing the law, but responding rightly to the law. So here we are, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
It was typical for the Jew to come to the synagogue to hear the reading of the Torah, to hear the reading of the prophets, and to hear the reading of the Psalms or the Proverbs. And for them to walk away feeling righteous, to walk away feeling as if they, they, they had salvation because they had knowledge of the law. And, and you got to think that your past always impacts the way you see the world, right? And so these Jews had been converted from Judaism into Christianity, into the early church. And so all of the teachings and the tutelage of Judaism has brought them into this new religion where they're following Jesus. And they're hearing the teaching and believing that upon their hearing that they are righteous. And Paul's saying indignantly, no, no, that is not sufficient. Just hearing the good news is not enough. Knowing the law is not enough. As, as we as modern day leader, readers look into this particular text, I want to give you something for you to chew on and wrestle with. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. What what am I getting at? Just because you know what the truth is, doesn't mean you're living in the truth. Just because you know Jesus is Lord, if you have not surrendered your life to him as the Lord of your life, doesn't mean you're getting to heaven. Just because you know about the historicity or the historical Jesus that he came and he was in Nazareth doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. I want to tell you because it matters immensely. It's not just what you believe, but it's about how you live. It matters there. That's where the crooks of the problem comes down to. Are you a hearer? Do you intellectually say, I agree, but I'm not so sure I want to apply. I want to tell you if you're stuck in that conundrum, there is truth. Judgment is coming for you and 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 I love you I want you to I want you to hear that in in me saying that intellectual sin to correct doctrine is not salvation acceptance to a creed is not enough to save a person to believe in a higher power historical Jesus is not sufficient for salvation in a modern sense you can attend church regularly every Sunday 52 weeks a year You can even read your Bible and not be a follower of Jesus. We must be completely submissive to the lordship of Jesus. The reality, being around the law is not enough. Do you want me to tell you who the best church goer is? He never misses a Sunday. He knows theological doctrine inside and out. He knows every attribute of God the Father. He can speak every name. He can quote every scripture that you know and more. You know who that is? That's Satan. That's Satan. See, in the book of James... James is writing, and he says, you do well to believe in God, but even the demons believe and shudder. Being intellectually drifting towards Jesus is not enough. We must confess him 
as Lord. Satan might know everything about God, but he's going to one day reside in hell because he refuses to submit to Jesus as the Lord of his life. No, Satan himself tried to put himself on the throne of heaven and tried to exalt himself, which got him cast out. He doesn't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus, and that's where everyone will go who does not want to themselves. So we can't run past this. We, we can't look at this scripture and just quickly gloss over it. Because the truth is, is there are many who attend church their whole lives, and even some who will go on a mission trip or two, who will not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes this so clear in what might be the most fearful scripture in all of the scriptures. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I want you to get this, man. This is the part that I need you to listen to. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Did we not do signs, miracles, and wonders in your name? Did we not proclaim your goodness and your salvation? Did people not respond, Jesus? Jesus, I was a Sunday school teacher. Jesus, I was a deacon. I was an elder. I was a pastor, Jesus. Jesus, that, that was my role. Don't you know? I served you. Verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why, you might ask? I believe it's because these folks never moved beyond mere intellectual assent to Jesus. They never moved from just believing to living in submission to the lordship and the authority of Jesus in their life. That should grip us mightily in our heart of hearts. We must dive headlong into submission, into servanthood of the Lord. Verse 13, the second half. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. We got to pause here because there's something we really got to sort through very closely. We have to unpack it. And we have to unpack it with the whole book of Romans in view. We can't unpack it just with verse 13 because I want to tell you there, there's a lot of brothers and sisters who, who preach on Sunday mornings who want to just cherry pick verses and not take into view the whole hermeneutic, the whole view, the whole counsel of a book. And they want, they want to make assertions and that, that is incorrect because we have to unpack this very last word in light of this phrase. The, the, here it is. But the doers of the law will be, what's that last word? 
in the Greek, dikaio is the annunciation. And in almost every other place in the New Testament, when we see this word justified, it has to do with a salvific impact. It has to do with, do you know Jesus? Have you been covered by the blood of the lamb? Do you stand before God justified? Meaning your debt has been paid, your balance is empty. Thank you, Siri. So we have this word justified. We have, we have to deal with this. We can't, we can't move forward. We have to deal with this word. What, what is Paul not saying here? I, I, I want you to hear this. What is Paul not saying here? We are saved by our works. That is what Paul is not saying here. We are saved by our works. That is, in fact, not true. If we were, if that were what he was implying, it would be a fundamental contradiction to what he outlines in the remainder of the book of Romans and especially what he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is not saying we are saved by our works. You can all take a deep breath. Whew. Because the truth is, if it was up to you and your works to get to heaven, you'd go to hell. And if it was up to you with your works to keep your salvation, you'd surely be going to hell. You can't earn your salvation and you can't lose your salvation by your works. Why? Because it was he who, who picked you up when you were a dead corpse. He locked you in in the seat on that train and it is he, he who keeps that train moving to heaven. He emphatically makes it clear that we cannot save ourselves by our works, but that salvation comes by no other means than Jesus Christ. We were wretched sinners, completely hopeless apart from the blood. And just like the, the early church reformers, we here at Rest Church, we submit to the five solas, and I'm going to give you two of those solas. Here it is. We believe that we are justified by faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone, we are justified. On the basis of Christ alone, solo Christus. We are, we are justified, we are saved by faith alone. Your confession is all that requires of you. That's all that you need to bring to the party is to say, dear Jesus, I submit to you as Lord. And you do that and your righteousness is found based on Jesus Christ alone. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Salvation is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. So what does this mean? What does Paul mean? But the doers of the law will be justified. Martin Luther said this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Martin Luther getting you from the 1500s right now. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Grace through faith brings about grateful, joyful, trusting obedience. 
obedience. Saving faith is an obedient faith, church. True faith is a faith in action. Saving faith is an obedient faith. True faith is a faith in action. So what does it mean? It means for us to, us to not just be hearers, but doers of the law is to have a life and a faith and a walk with Jesus that is in action. There's no stands in heaven, people. There's no pom-poms for people to hang out on the side periphery. We don't get to just check out. We don't get to pray our prayer and say, deuces, I'm out, I did my part. We, we don't get to do that. That's the, the picture, the very thing that Paul is getting at here. And also, if you read James chapter 1, verses 26, man, he's going to punch you in the face with the exact same thing. We don't get to just check out. Saving faith is an obedient faith. True faith is a faith in action. So if we call Jesus as Lord, we must be doers. What are we to be doers of? What are we to be doers of? The law, the word of God, all of it. Every single nook and cranny. We are to live our lives in submission. We are to conform our lives to the word, to the gospel. Why? Why? So that we can take off every manner of filthiness and wickedness and receive and put on, welcome, absorb, submit to, meekly humble ourselves and to receive the word of God. We are to take off every sin, every weight, as, as, as the, the writers say, so that we can run the race without anything holding us back. Paul Washer says this, the mark of a true believer is not sinless perfection. I want you to hear that. The mark of a true believer is not sinless perfection because the reality is you can try as hard as you can and you're still going to stink. You're still going to mess up. The mark of the true believer is not sinless perfection, but a new repugnance for sin, a greater sensitivity to sin, a more venient zeal to fight against sin, a humble contrition because of sin, and a willingness to confess sin. Is that, is that, is that your heart? Don't mind the rain. Is that your heart? Do you, are you in this place where you have a repugnance for sin, where you hate your sin, you hate the proclivity to do the things that you did before you met Jesus? Do you have a greater sensitivity to it? Is your antenna picking up when you're acting a fool to your kids? Is your, is your, is your, is your sensitivity picking up when you're being rude to your spouse? When you're being a jerk at work? To be a hearer only and not a doer has been likened by some scholars to Jesus' illustration in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. To be a, a hearer only is to build your life on the sinking sand as your foundation. And as the winds come, as the rain beats against it, as the waves crash against it, the house falls down. But to be a doer is to build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ with him as the chief cornerstone of your life. To be a doer of the law in the New Testament means, what does it mean? What does it mean? 
We have not been saved by our works, but we have been saved to work. Check that out. We have not been saved by our works, but we have been saved to work. You are called, you are commanded to be engaged in great commission work. Maybe you're like, pastor, I don't like that. I don't know what to tell you. I didn't write it. He did. But we are commanded. It was his last command that we are to go and to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. We have not been saved by our works, but we have been saved to works. Obedience flows out of faith. It is a consequence of saving faith. If you are truly saved, if you have surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, it should compel you. It should force you to live in great commission activity in your life. A better way of putting it, faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. Faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. We are called to be doers because God sees us as co-laborers. I want you to check that out. I don't, I don't have the scripture up here behind me, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, we see that God calls us his co-laborers. That, mean, he, that means there is a work to be done, and he's saying to you, come alongside me and let's do it together. I want you to think about that. Can, can he do it on his own? Absolutely, yes. Can he do anything he wants? Absolutely, yes. But he's saying to you, I want you to partner with me. I want you to come alongside me. We are called to work with him in advancing the good news. We need to see ourselves as emissaries to spread the good news of his salvation. We turn, when we turn um, wrenches, we do it as if we do it for the Lord. When we drive nails into walls as we pop up walls as a contractor, do it as if you do it for the Lord. When you walk into to the room of a, a, a rude patient, who, who you really want to put the pillow on their face? <laughs> Treat them as if you're treating the Lord. When you're cleaning the house, stay at home, mom. When you're loving your baby, stay at home, mom. Treat them as if you're treating the Lord. Clean your house as if you're cleaning it for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord because that's great commission work. The truth is, is there is no insignificant task in the kingdom of heaven. Because our work, if done rightly, draws people to us. Because they see us doing it in grace and humility. They see the smile that says, dude, you're cleaning a turlet. Why are you so happy? Look what the Lord has done. It draws people to us. And it allows us to be emissaries for his name. There is nothing insignificant in the kingdom of heaven. We need to move into the headspace where everything we do in word and in deed, we do it for the Lord. We do it all for the Lord. 
And how we do it reflects the attitude of our hearts. Our works, while they are in no part bringing about salvation, they are absolutely proof of it. Our justification is by faith alone. I want you to hear this next part. But our reward in heaven is by and based on our works. You're like, hold up, hold up. You're like, I've been going to a Baptist church my whole life. (laughs) The truth is, is your access into heaven has nothing to do with you. Has nothing to do with you. But if you want to lay crowns at the feet of Jesus, you need to do righteous works in order that you can do them. Just as Pastor John said last week, he said, when I get to heaven, I want to have all kinds of different trucks with all kinds of different beepers backing up to the throne going, mur, 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 and just dumping crowns at the feet of Jesus. This is, this is what I know. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. When I show up to the king, I want to have a present. When I show up to the king, I want to put something at his feet. When I show up to the king, I want him to know, I want him to know that I have loved him and I've served him richly. And because of those works that I have something to bring to him. The truth is, is the last thing you want to do is show up to heaven empty handed. Our justification is by faith alone, but our reward in heaven is by and based on our works. Are you able to lay something at his feet? Maybe this morning you you hear these words and you're like, Pastor, I'm with you. Just shut up already. What do I do? What does that mean to be a doer? So practically, be doers. What does it mean to be a doer practically? I want to be clear here. What are you being asked to do? What What is the request? Number one right here. Gosh, if we can just get this first one down, baby, we can knock them all out of the park. Here it is. Have a spirit of grace and humility about us. It should be evident. Have a spirit of grace and humility about us. Man, oh man, oh man. How many of you been to church with old foghorn leghorn before? Get that coffee out of God's house. Right? right. It, it's okay. You're in a safe space here. We're redeemed from religiosity here. But you've been around people who call Jesus Lord, but they have no grace and no humility in their lives. If there is anything that says you are a doer of the word, it is this. The truth is, is in, we like to read it in weddings for some reason, which you really should go read it to the couple after five years and not at their wedding day. But it says, it says it, you, can, you can speak in tongues, you can do all these great things, but if you have not love, you have nothing. You have nothing. So to be a doer of the word is to live a life of grace and humility. It should be evident, everything about us, grace and humility, counting others more significant than yourself. Number two, 
We seek to kill our sin with everything we have. John Owen, a Puritan preacher, said, be killing sin or it will kill you. What does that look like? That means that we confess it and we are accountable about it. I'm telling you, if you are facing a sin that you cannot get out of, you cannot get untethered from, you need to find a brother or a sister and you need to confess it. You need to say to them, I am held captive. The scriptures teach us that we that we confess our sins to God for, for forgiveness, but we confess our sin to our brothers for healing. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed is what the scriptures say. So what is tethering you that you're afraid to confess? What is tethering you from stepping into God's access into his kingdom? What is tethering you from having freedom? Because that's what it means to be a doer, to have that uncomfortable conversation and say, I'm addicted. I can't let it go. Help me. Hold me accountable. Follow up with me daily. I'm going to tell you there are men in my life who, who, who we do that with. We ask questions, hard questions. Why? Because we care about healing. Number three, open doors to share the gospel. Tell your story, how Jesus saved you. You might say, Pastor, I'm scared. I, I, I don't know what to do, how to do it. The scriptures actually tell us that in our moment, he will reveal to us what we need to know. I've said this to you before. The gospel is not a used car. It doesn't require a used car salesman. You don't need to dress it up, make it fancy, make it look pretty. All you need to do is just tell it. The Holy Spirit will do all the work. You just tell it. And I'm going to tell you, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Super uncomfortable. This past week, on Monday, I sat alongside a former colleague who's a Hindu. And I opened up my heart. And shared the gospel with him. He didn't respond. At times it was uncomfortable, but the truth is, is God commands us to be part of great commission work. And sometimes it means opening doors that are uncomfortable to tell people about the good news. Because anything short of that says, I hate you. I hate you. I would rather you be comfortable here than you spend the whole rest of eternity in hell. Open the doors to share the gospel. What does it mean to practically be a doer? Number four, be intentional about growing in knowledge of the word. To be a doer of the word, you gotta know what the word says. 
To be a doer of the word, you got to know what the word says to do. So be intentional, engaging in the scriptures. You say, I, I don't know how to do that. So often people say, I, I don't know where to start. The truth is, is we got books back there in the back. It says next. And we'll give you 30 days with Jesus. We'll give you 30 days to tell you exactly what to read every single day. You say, Pastor, I, what do I do from there? I, I can guarantee you, Kat, you know this for sure, don't you? If you come to me, I'll tell you a reading plan. I'll tell you, I'll help you. I'll even take your cell phone out and I'll download the next year's worth of reading plans to help you every single day spend time in the word. In order to be a doer of the word, you gotta know the word. The next one, serve others. Serve others. Oh my goodness. We got a lot of folks, as I said, who are, who are hanging out in the stands. They're showing up to, to church with their popcorn and their big Slurpee. Yay, Jesus. But they're never engaged in serving. Not serving the bride, not serving the community, not serving the needy, orphaned, and widow, as James 127 calls for us to do. Be serving. You say, I, I don't know, I, I'm not mature enough. Here the truth is, as Robbie Gallaty says this, ministry is a pathway to maturity. You want to grow the fastest, let me tell you this, serve. Serve. That's how you'll grow faster. And lastly, man, be a part of the faith community. Be a part of the faith community. Make this place, I don't care if it's not this place, I don't care if it's First Baptist, if it's relevant, I, I don't care where you go. Go to a Bible-believing church and be plugged in, man. Be a part of the community. Why, why? Because I, I equate it to like working out. When you're working out alone and you, and you start to get that cramp, man, you know what happens. But when you're working out with someone, you're running together. You're running together and you're like, man, I'm starting to feel tired. I'm starting to feel tired. And I'm a fluffy kid, so I feel tired real quick. And so you're like, I'm starting to feel tired. And they say, no, man, I believe in you. Let's go. We can do one more lap. Or you're, you're at the gym and you're doing that bench press. You're doing that squat. And all of a sudden you start to shake. And you're like, man, man, I, my, my legs are shaking. What happens, Zach, in the weight room with the players? What do they do? Come on, man, let's go. I believe in you. And something deep inside of you wells up. And you do more than you thought you could do. We need somebody to say, I believe in you. Because the reality is we are prone to quit alone. We are prone to quit alone. We check out of the church and we say, man, I just, I just don't have time. Or I'm not sure I agree with their theology. I'm not sure where I stand. Those people seemingly always find themselves in this tumultuous place in life, isolated and alone. 
without a community, without a group of people to say, I believe in you one more set. I believe in you one more lap. I believe in you. Get up off your face. We are prone to quit when we are alone. So if you want to be a doer of the word, be a part of the local church. Be a part of the bride of Christ. Be a part. Because the reality is what happens is people say, man, I want to, I want to spend eternity in Jesus. I want to spend eternity in Jesus. But they're unwilling to give more than two hours a week for him in this life. Come on, man. What a farce is that? What a farce is that? And you're like, gosh, man, you're, you're indignant today. You're darn right I am because I'm tired of seeing people broken when the community, the gospel community can stand them up and can help them walk out of the fire of life. We're prone to quit alone. Be a part of the community. And I want to make myself clear. Preaching does not make disciples. Preaching does not make disciples. Do, do I feel like I, I give it a good go when I do it? Yeah, I do. Do I feel like A.B. and Johan and, and John, they do a great job when they do it? Yes, but the reality is, is that doesn't make disciples, man. You need to be in community with people. You need people to look at you and ask you the hard questions. You need people to challenge you. Be a part of the faith community. So when we talk about being hearers and doers, it really comes down to this. Are you a disciple or are you a decision maker? Are you following him radically in your life? Or did you just walk down the aisle, shake the hands with the preacher and say, hey, I, I want to I do this thing. Just because you profess doesn't mean you're protected. You got to be a disciple. You got to be in submission to his lordship. True faith is a faith in action. Did you come to Jesus for fire insurance or did you come to him to be the Lord of your life? Because eternity is in the balance of that question. We have not been saved by our works, but we have been saved to work.